time. And as they go, um, we will turn in our Bibles and jump into the Word of God. As you can see, the title uh, of the, the mini-series, if you want to call it that, is just simply this, Behold Your King. And as we have just sung that song, King of Kings Forevermore, uh, that is Jesus that we're singing about, and uh, that is Jesus that we celebrate this time of year. And I pray that, that you would spend some extra time this year thinking through uh, the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and uh, that we would think through even this idea of the coming again of Christ, that our hearts would be encouraged as we think to uh, the future that we have with him. So behold your king. Today we're going to look at the triumphal entry, and uh, I would encourage you uh, after the service, don't do it during service, but after the service, maybe sometime today, uh, this passage or this account is in all four of the Gospels, and it's interesting to see how, how it's uh, similar, but each Gospel account shows different details. I would encourage you to read through those. Uh, we're not going to turn to any other ones today. We're just going to be in Matthew, uh, but I would encourage you to look at those and be encouraged uh, as we think through this idea of the triumphal entry of Christ. Uh, let's pray again. We won't read the Scriptures again, but let's pray and ask God's uh, blessing on our time together, and then we'll jump into the message. God, we are grateful again for your goodness and kindness towards us. And God, as we approach Easter weekend, God, we know that there was a lot that led up to the moment where Jesus rose again. And we think back into the Gospel of Luke and we remember the words of Christ where he set his face toward Jerusalem. We understand that that was more than him simply saying that he was going to Jerusalem, but he knew full well he was going to this place to be arrested, tried, beaten, to have a crown of thorns put on his head, to be suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, to be mocked, and to die. But God, we thank you that that's not the end of the story. That he did indeed rise again, and as he rose again, he secured not just his victory over death, but the victory over death for all who will place their faith and trust in him. And God, I do ask this morning that, that you would use your word and use your spirit to do a great work in our hearts, that as we behold our king today, as we behold him coming into this place that he had been many times before, but this time in a totally different way, God, I pray that, that this would only grow us in anticipation for the time when he would come again. We thank you, God, again, for your goodness and for your kindness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can claim him as our Savior. And God, I pray that if we have, that it would impact every area of our life. Be with us now as we study your word together. Speak to us in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Gospel of Matthew is all about the kingship or the rule of Christ. Matthew goes to great lengths to present Jesus in a way that reveals that his kingdom is not of this world. And not only was it not of this world, but it wasn't even one that his followers were necessarily looking for. All throughout his ministry, we find that Jesus, to the masses and to his closest followers, was confusing. They never knew what he was going to do. They never knew oftentimes what he meant by what he said. He was simply confusing. I like this thought that Jesus was different than what they wanted and more than they knew they needed. He was different than they wanted and more than they knew they needed. Think about that for a minute and then think through the gospel stories and see how those around Jesus were constantly missing the reality of who Jesus was and in some regards, they were disappointed by what Jesus didn't do or didn't say. Well, I would suggest to us today that as we look to this text, a very familiar text, that we'll find another scenario where Jesus, in some ways, lets those who are around him down. Their expectations were big. Their hopes were genuine. Their needs were real. And while Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of all that we need, we see it is sometimes true that we are not actually aware of what we need, but Jesus always is. Throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus was constantly telling his disciples that he would go away, that they would scatter, that he would be taken, that he was going to die, that they would forsake him, and they did not understand or agree with him. 
It gets to the point later on in Matthew 23 where in grief of heart, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a, as a, a, a chicken gathers her chicks, but you would not come. He was revealing the hardness of their hearts, but at the same time, he was revealing his compassion for them. His love was genuine, and their rejection was real. And it leaves us with a question to ponder, what will we do with Jesus? We'll get to that question towards the end of the message, but as we consider the triumphal entry of Christ on this Palm Sunday, I pray that we will catch a glimpse of Christ and a glimpse of the crowd and maybe even a glimpse of ourselves that would cause us to really think about the position or the place of our heart. The idea of behold your king is a thought that we would do well to consider not just today, but every day. And we will take time today and Friday and Sunday to to consider this thought of behold our king. And I pray that as we do, we would do some internal investigations into our own heart to see how we think about the one who came to be our savior and the sacrifice for our sins. Up until this point, Jesus had, in some regards, been concealing who he was. We saw that already in Mark, haven't we? That Jesus would tell people after he healed them or or forgave them, he would say to them, now be quiet about this. Don't tell anybody what has happened here. And we know that many of the people that Jesus said that to were disobedient and they couldn't help but proclaim the name of Christ. So Jesus was concealing who he was up until this point, and his concealing was purposeful, it was intentional, and it was planned, but now the day had come for him to publicly declare without avail who he was. To those who saw this, some would applaud, some would reject, some would think on this with contempt or criticize or mock or rebuke him for the thing that he did. But understand, church, that this was all a part of the eternal plan of God. In fact, as the call to worship was read this morning, this entry of Christ into Jerusalem was prophesied about. And any time something is mentioned in the Old Testament and then reiterated in the New Testament, we would do well to pay attention to it. And so this Palm Sunday, where Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, we understand was a part of the Holy Week. And while we see it as the day that Jesus rode in on a donkey to the Jewish community, They saw it as Lamb Selection Day. Remember, the city was filled because of the celebration of the Passover was happening, and all of this was coinciding as a part of the eternal plan of God. The prophecies were being fulfilled. The people were hopeful and expectant, and Jesus had arrived. And as I said earlier, though, looking back, that we we see that he ended up being different than they wanted, but he was still more than they knew they needed. The big idea this morning is this, as we ponder the scene before us and as we dwell on the Christ who came, may our hearts not miss the truths that are embedded in this text. This is not simply a historical record, but it is a call for us to see Christ as he is and not as we may want him to be. So let's look at this passage with a desire to see Christ and with a desire to see the truth about ourselves. The first thing we see this morning is the humility of the king in verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. Now, there's a reason I told you to read the parallel accounts, because that actually happens. When they go to take these two animals, the owner of the animal says, what are you doing? And what do the disciples say? The master has need of them. And what does the owner of the animal say? Go on your way. Incredible. Verse number four. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell ye the daughter of Sion... Behold, thy kingdom cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass. Thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the ass 
and the colt and put them on their uh, clothes, and they set him thereon. First thing we see is the humility of the king. This truly is a magnificent scene, isn't it? For all the time that, that came before this, Christ had wanted obscurity, but now we see that Christ wants to be made known. I was listening to something this week and it was talking about what it must have been like for Christ on the day that he woke up when he knew he was going to be going into Jerusalem for one final time. Imagine him waking up and as his eyes open and as he comes to consciousness, as he's staring at the ceiling, he's thinking to himself, this is the day. This is the day where, where people are going to be divided over who I am in an even greater way than they've ever been divided before. This is the day where my, my life and my ministry is going to be intensified in a way that it's never been intensified before. This is the day that's going to start the trial that would lead to him being crucified on a cross as people saw him display his kingship in a way that, again, he had been concealing up until this point. From this point on, his days would be filled with difficulty and trial and rebuke and disbelief and abandonment and mocking and shame. But he woke up, and what did he do? He took the very next step that he knew that his father wanted him to take. Why? Because his desire was to complete the will of the father. This is not the message, but as a side note today, friend, the illustration that Jesus gives here in his life in committing himself to the will of the Father is an example that we should live out or seek to live out day after day after day. We all face hardships and difficulties. We all face times in life where things seem impossible or daunting or scary. And what should our desire be? It should be to be like Jesus, who in the midst of those times, we trust the will of the Father and the heart of the Father and the hand of the Father. And we say, God, wherever you're going to lead me, that's where I'm going to go. And so as Jesus woke up on this day, we see that he was committed to the cause of the gospel to set himself in a position where he would be publicly condemned to be crucified on a cross. And because of the crucifixion on the cross, we understand that three days after that, he was able to rise again. And so as we think through the things that we face in life, may we be humble enough to follow the will of the Father for our lives regardless of what it brings. And as Christ enters this final week of his life before the, the crucifixion and resurrection, we see that he was entering a place that he had entered before, but this time he was entering this place with a very different sentiment. Luke 9 tells us that before this account, when Jesus knew that the time of his departure was drawing near, that he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he did this to, to stay faithful to the will of his Father. The question I asked myself as I read through this text was what was the attitude of Christ in this time? You can tell a lot about somebody, at least in a moment, by their attitude, can't you? If you have kids, when you ask them to do something, their response is often seen even before they speak any words. That body language they use, that facial expression they give, the way that their hands gesture or don't gesture, you can see a lot about a person based on their response, based on the attitude that they give even before they speak any words. And as we think to the person of Christ and as we think about the attitude of Christ, I could not get out of my mind this idea that Jesus was entering Jerusalem on this day, not with high-mindedness toward himself, but in humility towards the will of the Father. He was saying, God, if this is what you want me to do, then this is what I'm going to do. I will enter into this place where my life will then be taken. As we think through Matthew's writings, we understand that Matthew does a, a splendid job of showing us that Christ came in humility. As we think of Christ coming into Jerusalem on this day, we understand that many were going to misunderstand why he was there, including his own disciples. But Jesus entered this place with humility for the purpose of living out the will of his Father. As they enter into Jerusalem on this day, we see that Jesus begins by giving some disciples some instructions. And he says, I want you to go uh, into the village and, and I want you to find this donkey and her colt and I want you to, to loose them and bring them to me. 
Now, this would have been uh, some strange command to give to two disciples to enter into a place where they probably didn't know the people that they were going to see. They, they didn't know where they were going to find these animals. But what did they do? They, they listened to what Jesus said, and they went and did as Jesus wanted them to do. And they made their way to this place with the words of Jesus ringing in their mind. If anybody says, uh, what are you doing? Or says, you can't take these. All you have to say is the master has need of them. And these people will let you take their animals without even questioning. Now, how many of you would be a little nervous to enter into a village and take somebody else's donkey? Well, let's put it into modern day language. How many of you would be nervous to go in downtown St. Albans and walk up next to a car and hop in it and drive it away? Right? That's, that's theft, right? That's, that's, that's what they were doing, though. They were going into a village and taking somebody else's possessions and they had to be uh, fearful inside of what this was going to bring about for them. So they go into the village and they find a donkey and, and her colt and they're thinking to themselves, man, this is kind of weird, but we're just going to follow through with it. And I imagine as they begin untying this donkey from the post that she's tied on, the owner comes out and it's not with a, oh, hey guys, how you doing, right? What, what do you think that owner said? What are you doing? That's my donkey. That's, that's my donkey's baby. What are you doing with my animals? And they simply responded with, the master has need of them. And what does the owner of the donkey say? Go your way. Go your way. And so as Jesus gives these instructions, we understand that, that he did it in humility. He wasn't taking these animals because they belonged to him and, and he was going to do with these animals what he wanted to do. No, he was taking them in humility. So what? So the prophecy that was given in Zechariah 9, 9 would be fulfilled, that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on this donkey. Now for us, we think of, of riding a, on donkey as, as, a, a, as a lowly state, meaning that if, if a king was riding into a town, how would we assume them to ride? On a horse. Now, honestly, in this day, a donkey was actually a chosen vehicle, so to speak, for a ruler to ride on because of the humility that it showed. Now, when Jesus comes again, is he going to be riding on a donkey? No, because he's coming for a whole different reason. He's coming with a completely different purpose. But nevertheless, as Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem, he gives these disciples these instructions, and they go and they find this donkey, and they bring him back to Jesus, all to fulfill the prophecy that was given. And as we think about Christ being a, a humble servant of the Most High God, why are, we, why are we drawing this idea that this shows humility? Because if Jesus wanted to make a name for himself in this moment, Jesus could have entered any way he wanted to. But again, what did he do? He humbled himself to the prophecy that was given about him to show submission to the plan of the Father. In our world today, we think that humility is often a sign of weakness. But friends, humility is not weakness at all. Humility is a quality that each of us should desire to have, that we can live under the authority of another individual, and most specifically, that we can live under the authority of God. And if we are arrogant in our lives and we're saying that we're going to do things our own way, then we're forsaking the example that Christ has set before us, and we're dismissing this idea that humility is needed in the Christian life. And so Jesus gives this command, and these disciples go, and they get this donkey and her baby, and they bring it back. And verse 4 tells that this was all done, that the, the prophecy would be, be fulfilled. In verse 6, the Bible says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought these animals back to Jesus, and they took off their clothes, and they laid them on the donkey, and they set Jesus on that beast of burden. They set Jesus on this animal that he would then ride into Jerusalem on. And as I said a moment ago, if, if we were thinking of a way to enter into a village triumphantly, uh, we would probably think of a lot, different ways, a lot of different ways to do it. But Jesus, in his humility, said, I'm going to submit myself to the will of the Father to come in the way that he has ordained me to come. 
And it reminds us of the humility of Christ that we see all throughout the scriptures. And it reminded me of the passage in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I am a meek and lowly Savior, and I desire that you would come to me. As we think about the meekness of Christ in calling people to come to him, and as we think about the meekness of Christ in the way that he submitted himself to the will of the Father, can we agree today that it's a good thing that Jesus is meek and lowly and humble? Have you ever had to approach somebody who had an air of arrogance about them? That in, in whatever way you approached them, you were wrong. In whatever question you asked, you would be belittled. And whatever thing you said, it would be contradicted, even if you were right. Friend, Jesus asked us to come to him in humility. And as we come to him in humility, do you know what we'll be met with? The humility of the Savior who came for us. And as Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem on this day, the prophecy would be that he would come in meekness. And as we think through the life of Christ, as we think through the way that he lived, the way that he treated people, the way that he handled himself, knowing that he was God in the flesh. We understand that he did so in humility so that he could be the fulfillment of all the scriptures that were written about before his incarnation. And so the first thing we see this morning is the humility of the king. He humbled himself to the will of the Father so that through completing the will of the Father, we might be redeemed and become the children of God. Certainly we could go to passages like Philippians 2 and we could see more on the humility of Christ and we won't do that for time's sake, but it's good for us to dwell on these things and on this theme of humility for it's littered throughout the life of Christ because he truly is the humble king. The humble king. The second thing that I want to point out today and, and hopefully this will all tie together at the end is the presumptions of the people. In verses 8 through 11, the Bible continues, it says, And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed uh, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The presumptions of the people. As Jesus mounted that donkey, as the disciples set him on it, and as they made their way to Jerusalem, we see that the scene before us intensifies. It would almost seem that until this point, it was just Jesus and his disciples and maybe a few others that were around. But as this donkey makes its way back, maybe the owner of the donkey was curious as to what these guys were going to do with the donkey. Maybe, that, though they said, yeah, you can take my animals, they, they drew a crowd themselves and said, hey, these guys are taking my animals. And they said, the master has need of him. Let's go and see who that master is. Let's see what he has need of my animals for. And it doesn't take long that as the donkeys make their way back to Jerusalem with the disciples leading them, that a very great multitude gathers. When you hear that phrase, very great multitude, it's not just the 12 disciples and a few others. But remember, the city was swelling at this time. Why? Because the Passover was taking place. People were traveling in from afar to be a part of this feast, this remembrance feast of, of the way God had worked in their lives in the past and also to look forward to what God was going to do in the future. And so this great crowd is, is accumulating. They're finding their way to where Jesus was. And, and, and as they see the scene before them, the Bible says that they start taking off their outer garments and throwing them on the ground while others begin to cut off branches from trees, and throw them on the ground. And one commentator I read says that this was an act, uh, that the act of spreading out the garment was one of recognition, loyalty, and a promise of support. As we think through that idea, what do we know that much of the Jewish people were looking for in that day? A political leader. They were looking for somebody to rescue them. 
while they were their, their own people, they were living in an occupied nation. They were under the control or the rule of the Roman government, and they despised that. They were taken advantage of. They were in some ways abused and neglected. And so when they heard that Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, this one that they had seen do so many miracles, this one that they had seen heal people and forgive people and claim that he was God, when they saw him be placed on that donkey and as the crowd began to swell around him in their minds, what are they thinking? Our political freedom has arrived. Jesus has come and he is going to set us free. And while Jesus did come to set them free, we understand that again in this moment, Jesus was more than they knew they needed. You see, what if Jesus came in that day and set up a political kingdom in that place? Do you think all the unrest in that place would have ceased? No. Let's just use our country, for example. If everybody in the country voted the same way, and I, I'm not going to get deep into politics here this morning, but do we think that that political unrest would cease? No. Why? Because what's the... the the true problem with humanity is their hearts, right? And so if Jesus simply came to, to make a political kingdom where everybody would be on the same page, we understand that, that these people in that kingdom would still face their enemies from the outside. And so while they wanted Jesus to come for a specific reason, we understand that Jesus was coming for an entirely different reason, one that they didn't understand, but one that they needed to understand if they were going to find the freedom that Jesus had offered in his life and in his ministry. And so as these people spread out their garments in recognition and in loyalty and in a promise of support, we were say, they were saying that we're on Team Jesus. But how many of these people ended up forsaking King Jesus? Probably most of them. Now, there are many who say that everybody in the crowd who was cheering Hosanna on this day was later cheering crucify him. I think some of that is a little bit of conjecture because we don't fully know. Was there some overlap? Probably. That there were groups who were cheering Hosanna on this day, and then they were swayed by the, the Pharisees and the religious elites of that day to then yell, crucify him. But I, I, don't, I think it's unfair and really unnecessary to say that everybody had swapped sides from being on Team Jesus to being against Jesus. But we do see that as these people saw Jesus coming in on this day and the way that he came, they were thinking to themselves, our freedom has arrived. And while it was true their freedom had arrived, it is also true that they were indeed completely mistaken in what that freedom looked like. Now this town that is mentioned here, Bethphage or Bethpage, uh, was a couple of miles outside the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus entered in on this day, it's interesting that the, the crowds in Jerusalem would be so great that legally the surrounding villages would become legally a part of Jerusalem for these feast times because the crowds would be so great. And so as it says Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, it's not just that he was making his way from Bethphage to Jerusalem, but legally he was in the midst of Jerusalem as he got on this donkey and made his way deeper into the city. And as these people saw these things, they began to get excited. They began to, to think beyond even what Jesus desired for them to think. They began to let their excitement get the best of them, and they began to say this phrase, Hosanna! And what does that phrase, Hosanna, mean? It means save now. Save now. They began to claim that he was from the line of David, and he was, and that's what they were looking for, a political leader from the line of David who would reclaim the throne and rule the people as God desired for them to be ruled. And they continued with this phrase, save now, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, save now. And they were looking for a leader to come and free them. And while Jesus was that leader to come and free them, we understand that he was coming to free them in a completely different way. This quote in these, this section of verses is, is a quote from Psalm 118. And this was a psalm that they would sing as they made their way to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And they were singing it now with, with 
a greater meaning because Jesus had arrived, but they were still misunderstanding the fullness of who was before them on that day. And what does this reveal to us? That the world is looking and longing and desiring for someone to save them. But isn't it true that so often we look to the wrong things to be our Savior? Or we may even look to the right things, but with the wrong motive. You see, friend, Jesus came on this day and the people were thinking, he's here and he's going to make our life easier. He's here and he's going to make our life better. He's here and every wrong that has been done to us for years and years and years in the past is going to be made right in this moment. He's here. The one who will save us is on the scene. But they were misapplying what Jesus had been teaching them to who he was. And we understand that again, in some way, they were going to be let down as Jesus then was crucified and died on the cross. But didn't Jesus tell them over and over again that the Son of Man or the Son of God is going to be taken and arrested and tried and crucified? But have hope. Why? Because on the third day, I will rise again. And they missed it. They missed it time and time again. And as Jesus was entering into the town on this day, as he was entering into Jerusalem on this day, it was causing quite a stir. And as we think back, we must remember that this isn't the first time that Jesus had caused quite a stir in this place. If you think back over 30 years earlier, who was it that entered from the east looking for this king that was born? It was the wise men. And that caused an uproar of its own, and they rejected the idea that Jesus was who the prophecies claimed he would be, and sadly, again, in this moment, they would reject who Jesus said he was and who the prophecies said that he would be. So he was entering into Jerusalem, which was not uncommon, but the way that he was entering on this day was, was proclaiming a message that even now the ears of the people were not ready to understand or to receive. The hardness of their hearts was still great. And that's why in chapter 23, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you unto myself? And yet your hard hearts caused you to reject me. Whether it was the religious crowd that Jesus was speaking to, which we know he was, or the political crowd, or even his own disciples. In some way, they all rejected Jesus because he was not what they wanted him to be. Friend, what are your thoughts towards Jesus today? There's some here who, who know Jesus as their Savior, and you have weathered a hard life, understanding that trusting in Jesus does not make things easier, but oftentimes it actually makes things harder. And that is a truth. Paul went from being one who killed Christians to what? Being one who people were seeking to kill. He went from a position of prestige and power to being one who was hunted down and abandoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and stoned and all of these tragic things happened. Yet what was Paul's sentiment as he spoke? He said, I'm not going to give up until Jesus calls me home. Why? Because serving King Jesus is worth it. He was approaching it with the right mindset. But you know what so often we do? Life gets a little hard and we begin to think, well, well, maybe he's not as powerful as he claimed he would be. Or, or maybe he doesn't care like I was tricked into thinking he cared. Or maybe he's not even the one that I should look to. <laughs> Friend, Jesus didn't come this first time to right all wrongs. He didn't come to bring with him a new creation as he came in the incarnation. We know that all things will be made new one day, but for now we live in the in-between space where we still deal with a messed up world. And who would agree with me today that the world is messed up? Would you agree with that? But why do we live in this messed up world? To proclaim the name of Jesus 
to those who have not heard, to give them a right idea of who this Savior is so that they would look to him and by faith believe that he is the Savior of the world and live. And so as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on this day and as the crowd was crying, Hosanna or save now, as they were selecting their lambs that would be laid on an altar and given as a sacrifice, what they missed was this, that the true lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world had arrived. And he would be slain, but he would rise again. And he would secure victory over death for all those who would place their faith and trust in him. And friends, can I ask us today, what is better? Temporary political victory or eternal spiritual victory? Every time, hands down, eternal spiritual victory. And so let us not miss what they missed on this day that Jesus came with great intention. And even though the intention was not that they what they perceived, we see that that didn't sidetrack Jesus. You know, this again reminds us that, that Jesus was not a political pawn to be moved about by the will of men. And as that was true back then, friend, he is not that today either. That if he entered into Jerusalem on that day and the excitement of the people started to to do something within him, maybe one of us would have said, you know what? It is a good plan that I'm here. It is a good plan for me to set up a kingdom right now. But what would have happened if Jesus had done that? The rest of the world would have been left in hopelessness. So Jesus wasn't a political pawn, and he didn't give in to the presumptions of the people, but he stayed true to the will of the Father. So the first thing we see is the humility of the king. Second thing we see is the presumptions of the people. Finally, we see the questions to ponder. I have six questions, and maybe you're looking at your clock right now and said, Dan's on point three, and it's only 11.04. This is a miracle in and of itself. Um, there's six questions to ponder, so let's, <laughs> let's calm down before we get too excited. Six questions to ponder as we consider this text, this, this is a thrilling story. The idea of, of Jesus making his final entry into Jerusalem, as we think about the way that the people were cheering, and you know what Jesus didn't do? Is Jesus did not quiet them down in this moment like he had every other time. He wanted his name to be proclaimed. He wanted the attention to be on himself in this moment, not in a, in a, a prideful way, but he wanted people to see him as he was, not as they wanted him to be. And so all eyes were on Jesus from this moment until the crucifixion. From this point on, everyone was looking in his direction, wondering what he was going to do, wondering how he was going to act, wondering what was going to be done with him to some degree. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and as the people make these presumptions, and as we think through those things, it's now time for us to think about these six questions that I think will help apply this message directly to us. The first question is this. As we made our way through the text, we saw that Jesus told two disciples to go. So the first question that I have for us is, is this. Are we obedient like the disciples? Think about that. Are we obedient like the disciples? You say, well, I don't know what to be obedient to. Anybody have one of these in their laps? This is God's word. This is God's instruction for us in how we are to live and how we're to relate to him and how he has chosen to relate to us. And as Jesus gave these two disciples, we don't know who they were, as he gave them this command to go, what did they do? They simply went. This is a, a, a preview of the command that Jesus would give at the end of the Gospels when he said what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Be obedient to my words. Do what I have called you to do. And church, I would simply ask us this morning, are we obedient like the disciples? Now, we'll all have areas in our lives where we fail. And sometimes we become defeated in our failures. But Jesus never told us to be defeated by our failures. He told us to be committed to him. And if you're committed to him, what does that mean when you fail? It means you're going to get back up and start again. It means you're going to pick up where you left off. It's going to, it means you're going to go back to where you messed up and get on the right course. Yesterday we were driving home and uh, 
we were uh, down near uh, Castleton area, and I think it's Route 4 there, and I missed the exit off of Route 4 and had to keep going. And, and Brianna said, are you going to go back? I said, nope, we can go this way too. Why did I say that? Because I don't like turning around, right? Turning around admits what? That I had done something wrong. I was already feeling bad enough about myself that my wife got confused as my daughter. I'm like, I'm not giving to this either, this too. So we kept going and we, we, we lengthened our journey because I wasn't obedient to the GPS. Friends, if you mess up in your Christian life, understand that God is gracious enough to forgive you and to allow you to begin again. Don't become defeated in your failures. But there's, a, there's a, a, an error on the other side as well. We don't want to be defeated in our failures, but you know what we also don't want to do? We also don't want to rejoice in our failures. Well, this is just who I am. This is just who God made me. This was just God's will for my life. Friend, get up and begin again. Be obedient as these disciples were. Do what God wants you to do. Live how God wants you to live. Speak to whom God wants you to speak to. We understand that our obligation is to Christ. And if our obligation is to Christ, it is best seen when we are obedient to him. When these two disciples made their way into that village and said, hey, our master has need of your donkeys, what did the guy say? Then take him. We don't know how that was set up. Could Jesus have gone in earlier and, and set up something with this guy that these guys were going to take his donkeys? He absolutely could have. Let's not look past what, what Jesus practically could have done. Could Jesus have miraculously worked in this guy's heart to say, take my donkeys? He could have. Truth is, it doesn't matter. What's illustrated for us here is the obedience of the disciples that they went and did what Jesus called them to do. So are we obedient like the disciples? Something to consider. Second thing, and you might, might take offense to this, I hope you don't, but are we useful like the donkey? Anybody ever compared you to a donkey before? If they have, it's typically not a good thing, right? Um, that, this could go lots of directions, and we'll just leave it where it is for now. Um, but are you useful like the donkey? Um, donkeys are known to be what? Stubborn. Anybody here ever struggle with stubbornness? Has your stubbornness ever kept you from being useful for the kingdom of God? Think about that. See, I can't believe we're comparing ourselves to a donkey in church. It's okay. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you a donkey? Do it. Do it. Are you useful like the donkey? Are you obedient to the will of God, doing what God wants you to do above what you want to do? Are you interested in being a vessel that will be used for his glory? Imagine the, the owner of this donkey talking about his donkey for years to come. It was on my donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It was on my donkey that the disciples set the Savior of the world as he made his final entry into this place before he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. That donkey was just a vessel. And friend, that's what you and I are called to be, a vessel for the, the Spirit of God to work in and work through. And so I would ask us, are we useful for the sake of the kingdom? Matt was listening to a sermon this week as we were painting downstairs, and, and he, he's like, whoa. He brought it over to me to listen to, and the guy was, was preaching hard truth about the amount of potential that was sitting in the pews of his church, but the people were doing nothing. Do you know you have potential for the kingdom of God? Do you know, church, that God desires to use you? To make his name known? To speak to, to somebody who is lost and dead in their sins about the one who came to die in their place so that they could be forgiven? Are you useful? Or are we so caught up in everything else that we have going on in life that being useful for the kingdom has, some, has become something that we have set off to the side until we have time for it? What if those disciples looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, we don't have time to go get the donkey right now. You know what Jesus would have said? Hey, you two, go get the donkey. Why? Because the donkey is useful for me. 
Friend, if the Spirit of God is poking and prodding at your heart in this area of serving Him in a way that maybe you're uncomfortable with, can I encourage you to give in to the prodding? Why? So that you can be used of the Master. So that you can be used by the one who knows you inside and out. You give a, a hammer and a chisel to somebody who has no idea how to use those things, and they're going to make a mess of it, right? You give a hammer and a chisel to a craftsman, and they're going to make a beautiful piece of art. And you know what God is? He is a craftsman who will use your messed up life to make a beautiful piece of art for his honor and his glory. So are we useful like the donkey? I hope you go away today asking yourself, am I useful like the donkey? The third question is, are we willing like the owner of the donkey? Talked about this a little bit already, and we don't know the scenario behind the story of how these donkeys got to be used. If Jesus set it up ahead of time, we know that he had been through this this country before. We, we know that he had many acquaintances in this, this village and these towns. But are you useful like the owner of the donkey? What do you mean, Dan? Are you willing to let God use what you have, not just your life, but are you willing to let God use what you have for his glory? So I don't have much. Well, what did Jesus do with five loaves and a, and a couple of fish? He fed 5,000 people. What did God do with one, one body that was broken and his blood was shed and provided salvation to the world? So I, I wonder, are, are we useful like the owner of the donkey that we would say, God, you've given me these resources and I want them to be used for your purposes? You ever watch the show Hoarders? I can't watch it. I just, I, I can't do it. It makes me too stressed out to think of people living that way. But you know what? I'm probably guilty at times of being a spiritual hoarder about using the blessings that God has given me for myself and myself alone. When we talk about giving here, church, understand that I'm, I'm never begging for your money. Bruce never begged for your money. Why? Because we don't want you to give it because we want you to give it. We want you to give it. Why? Because you know that God can do way more with it than you could ever do on your own. And that's true about your life as well. When our four kids were born in the hospital, we prayed over our children saying, God, use them for your glory. We're giving them back to you for your purposes. What does that mean for our kids? I have no idea. But you know who does know? An all-wise and sovereign God. And these kids were just gifts that were lent to me in the first place. And so... How foolish would it be for me to hold them to myself instead of giving them back to him? So are we willing, like the owner of the donkey, a talent that you have where we can always use, well, maybe not this morning, but we can always use more people serving in, in the music ministry, right? People who have gifts and talents that they're hoarding or keeping to themselves, use them for the glory of God. Maybe it is your finances. Maybe God has blessed you abundantly in the area of, of money and you have a good job. Friend, can I tell you, at the end of your life, if you hoard those things to yourself, you will have regrets. But if you give those things freely, then you'll be blessed. The things that God gives us are not meant to be held tightly in the grip of our hand fearing that someone's going to misuse them. The gifts that God has given are meant to be held in an open palm so that God can take them and use them as He pleases. So your talents, your finances, your time, your kids, your opportunities, your marriage, can that be used for the glory of God? Our prayer shouldn't be, God, give me this so I can be used more, but our prayer should be, God, help me to be a good steward with what you've already given me. You ever heard somebody speak with a sentiment, if God would just do this, then I would do that? Friend, if that's your attitude towards God, then if God was to give you what you were wanting, you probably still wouldn't do what you said you were going to do. Why? Because it's all a matter of the heart. So are we willing, like the owner of the donkey? The third, or yeah, fourth question, are we praising in sincerity and truth? 
It's, it's interesting. Sometimes when people go through a hard time, their praise gets amped up, and, and I, I, it's not always wrong, but their praise gets amped up at times thinking that they can manipulate God to do something that maybe God wasn't going to do. Friends, understand this right now. While man is often manipulated with praise, God is never manipulated with praise. He's not. He's not. God's plan will come to fruition. God's will will be done. As Jesus was entering into the city on this day, the crowd was beyond excited. They were thinking that their Savior had come. They were saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord from the line of David. He's here. Our King is here. But we understand that the praise didn't last long. Why? Because Jesus didn't do what they wanted Jesus to do. And so I would ask us, are we praising in sincerity? What does that look like? It means that whether your life is going extremely well, that you praise God for what He's doing, or whether you find yourself in the, the pit that seems bottomless, that we praise God for what He's doing. Is our praise in sincerity and in truth? Or are we praising trying to manipulate the situation to our advantage? The fifth question is this, are we stirred like the city? Verse 10 says, the whole city, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? Well, we know who Jesus is. I wonder, are are we still moved by who Jesus is? Are we still blown away that he's not just a Savior, but he is our Savior? Are we blown away with this idea that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that he was the propitiation for our sins, that his righteousness was imputed to us and our wickedness was imputed to him so that he could die in our place on the cross and be the one who would rescue and redeem us, not just from the wickedness of the world, but from the wickedness within ourselves. Are we stirred by who Jesus is? Friends, this is Easter season. Have we even given any thought to him? I got, I got a few more days. Now, friend, giving thought to Jesus should be something that takes place every day. Why? Because he is worthy of our attention. The final question is this. Are we believing continually? As I said, it's, it's a little bit of conjecture to, to say that everybody flopped positions. They went from singing praise, Hosanna, Save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to then screaming crucify him a few days later. But we have to believe that there were some who did that. There were some who were so disheartened by this reality that Jesus did not set up the kingdom in the way that they wanted, that they flopped sides and said, away with this man. We have no use for him. And so I would ask us, are are we believing continually? You say, well, I, I still believe... Jesus is my Savior. Think for a minute of those who were surrounding Jesus that were close to Jesus on this day. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. Are we believing continually? What about the other disciples when Jesus was taken in the garden? The Bible says that they all scattered. They all went their own way. Are we still believing continually? What about even after Jesus was risen from the dead and and Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see, until I put my fingers in the nail prints in his hands and touch the wound on his side. Are we believing continually? The greatest message that we can preach to the world or greatest example that we can live in front of the world is a belief where we continually live with this idea of who Jesus is, not just in our hearts, but on our lips. Friends, if things are going well for you and you're talking to your coworkers about how good Jesus is and then the next day things fall apart and you're like, man, I don't know where God is in this moment. Do you understand that God has never changed positions? He's always been where he's always been. Our belief in him is not dependent on what he's doing for us in the moment. Our belief in him is dependent on what he's done for us in the past, that, he is, uh, that, that Jesus did come from God to be the savior of the world and that he still stands as our savior today. So are you believing continually? Continual belief is a sign of initial belief. 
Does that make sense to you? That when you continue in your beliefs, it's a sign that your initial belief was genuine. That it wasn't just words that you said, but it was something that happened inside of you that you cannot deny. And so when God seems silent or when God seems absent, will you determine to still believe in Him? And so we see the humility of the king. As he rode in on this donkey, he came in meekness and lowliness. We see the presumptions of the people that they expected something that Jesus had not promised. And then we see the questions to ponder. I pray that as we behold our king, that we would answer those questions in truth and not in pretense because we can often, when we question ourselves, make ourselves look better than we really are. But let's allow the Spirit to answer those questions about us. And then let's agree with the Spirit when He answers those questions. And then surrender to Him as He would have us surrender. And so church, behold your King. Jesus is His name. His work is to provide eternal salvation through His sacrificial death to all who will believe. He came in humility, leaving what was His to give His life so that we could have what was never ours to begin with, life eternal. He came uh, in front of the crowds, and as they saw him, they applauded him, but they missed the truth about him. And sadly, there are many in the world today who are still missing the boat on Jesus. But as we gather today, I pray that we would simply do this, behold our king, not as we want him to be, but as he is. And when we behold him as he is, do you know what we'll understand? That He is more than enough. That He is more than enough. Friend, if you're here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that He is enough for you. You may think over your life and say, well, I've done too much wrong. I, I have gone down the wrong path too many times. I have neglected to believe up until this point. Friend, if you're still living and, and breathing, guess what? There's still an opportunity for you to understand who Jesus is. And if the Spirit of God is drawing Him, drawing you to His self, I wonder today, will you believe in Him? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you're here today and you're thinking, I'll get to God in my own way then your own way will always lead to failure. And eventually, your own way will lead to eternal separation and a place of eternal torment that was created for the, the demons, for the devil and his angels. So will you believe today? Will you place your faith and trust saying, uh, in Christ saying, I, I know that I'm not enough. I know that I have messed up. And I trust Jesus to be the propitiation or the forgiveness or the payment for my sins so that I can come into a right relationship with God. The Bible says if we confess our sins, if we believe in our heart that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world by faith, that salvation can be ours, and the salvation is not a momentary political salvation like these people wanted in Matthew 21, but it is an eternal salvation that nothing can strip away from us. So I ask you today, will you believe in this Jesus? Will you trust in this one who has the power to save you from yourself? The second question that I have is, is just this, are you following Jesus? If you want those six questions, I will gladly give them to you. But are you, are you truly following him? when it's popular, when it's unpopular, when it's easy and when it's hard, out of convenience or out of obligation, are you truly following Jesus? When your kids look at your life, when your neighbors or your coworkers look at your life, do they look at you and say, man, I don't understand this person, but what I understand is this, they're devoted to the king. I don't understand why. I don't get why they do what they do, but I understand that there's an obligation there that I cannot understand. When people look at us, do they, do they think that about us or do they think, unfortunately, like a lot of the world thinks of Christians, that oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. 
They say they believe, but they never do anything with it. As we behold our King today, church, do we believe that He is worthy of our attention? Yeah. Yeah, we do. He's worthy of everything. Why? Because He gave everything so that we could be forgiven. Luke 9.23 says, And He said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Peter was called for the first time, what did Jesus say? Follow me. When Jesus commissioned Peter again later on in life, what did Jesus say? Peter, follow me. Just follow me. As that was the commission in Peter's life, it is the commission in our lives as well. And I pray that as we behold the King, that we couldn't help but follow Him because we're so enamored with who He is and what He has done. As we ponder the scene before us, and as we dwell on the Christ who came, may our hearts not miss the truths that are embedded in this text. This is not simply a historical record, but it's a call for us to see Christ as He is and not as we want Him to be. Will we behold our King today? And will we follow Him? God, we thank You for this opportunity.